Let's open it up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Tonight we're going to try and get our way through chapters 4 and 5. What a, uh, just an incredibly sweet uh, portion of the Word of God. There's a ton of application here. There's a ton of just practical, you know, what does it look like to live as a Christian, to live as a follower of Christ, but a lot of reminder along the way of what Christ is doing and how he's doing the work. So, remember, the church in the city of Thessalonica was started in a really hard time, a hard season for Paul. He had been, uh, he had broken up with his best friend. He had gone out on a missionary journey, really without a very clear understanding of where he was going and where the Lord was leading him. And if you read in Acts, Acts 15 and 16, really you see Paul trying to move where the Lord is leading him, but struggling to understand where that is. And okay, you know, I understand the big purpose, my big passion, my big call, and my, my responsibility is to preach the gospel. But where and how and to whom and in what context? And he's struggling through all these things. And he winds up in the city of Philippi, and a church is birthed out of that, but immense persecution happens, and he's driven out of Philippi. And he goes to Thessalonica. And he's there in the city for three weeks. And in three weeks, a healthy church is born. A church is, is planted full of believers who Paul describes his relationship with them. And he says, we are just so blessed at the faith that you've learned. You're continuing in it. You're growing. You're holding fast to the truth that you know. Um, and so in the midst of intense persecution, intense hardship in Paul's life, the Holy Spirit birthed something out of that. And that's how oftentimes life works. Intense persecution in Paul's life birthed not just a church to, in the city of Thessalonica, but a letter of encouragement. Because since he was only there for three weeks, he wrote this letter, uh, some people say as short of a, as a few months later. Um, not very long after the church was started, he wrote a letter because he got kicked out so fast. And so we are the recipients tonight of Paul's hardship, right? We are receiving a blessing because he went through something hard. Second Thessalonians is the same thing. Really, pretty much all of Paul's books are more or less the same idea. And that is that because Paul had something he wasn't able to finish saying in person, he wrote it down. So they could get to the person because he wasn't able to be with the person. He wasn't able to be with the church. And so we receive the blessing of that. Because the Holy Spirit started a work in the city of Thessalonica. Paul did not start a church. The Holy Spirit did. And three weeks is more than enough time for the Holy Spirit to start a healthy church. And so last week we looked at chapters 1, and th- one through 3. And Paul references sort of their heart. He references how he came and how he taught them. You know, he said he came like a, like a steward who had a responsibility to manage uh, what God had entrusted to him to be faithful in how he delivered the word of God. He came like a mother, caring for them, wanting to nurture them. And he came like a father, wanting to exhort them and build them up and strengthen them. And so tonight, where Paul goes is he's going to apply some of those ideas. Because I've come to you in this kind of sincerity. Because I've come to you with this heart for you like a mother and this, this desire to see you grow like a father. Because I came to you in so much pain and suffering, I have an ability to speak in your life. I've earned a right to speak. And so he's going to do that. And so he starts off in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Finally then, brethren, he's halfway through, but he's wrapping up in his mind. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says, Okay, I'm going to urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. So this is not Paul saying, Here's a, these are going to be my ideas. 
on how a church should function. These are not my ideas on how individuals should do things. These are commands that I am passing and I am exhorting you in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus views these as important, Paul is saying, and so I am writing them down for you. And he says, I want you to abound more and more, just as you received from us how you ought to walk. And so what he's saying is, in a sense, basically, hey guys, you're doing great. Be encouraged. What I'm going to tell you is more or less to keep growing. Keep abounding. Abound more and more. You're already abounding. Just do it more. And so what he's going to outline in here, in a sense, is, is really, in some ways, nothing radical. It's pretty straightforward, honestly. You read through the second half of Thessalonians, like, okay, I, I, know, I pretty much know what he means right here. There's a couple spots where you kind of got to back up and explain it, but by and large, 1 Thessalonians, the second half, is about as straightforward of application as you can find in the Scripture. And, he, and, and his idea is, you know this. If you're in the Word of God, if you're in a position of relationship and fellowship with the Lord, very often the things that the Lord wants to work in your heart are things that you already know. Right? There are truths that you already know to be true, but He wants to remind you of them. He wants you to be strengthened in them. He wants you to grow in them and be built up. And so that's where Paul is exhorting this church. He's saying, you guys know this. And to this church, we could say, you know what, by and large, most things in here, you guys are going to know. So if you're coming tonight like, boy, I hope he just blows my mind. First of all, you ought to know by now. That's a, this is a bad place to come. But second of all, the, the goal is not to get your mind blown. The goal is to have your mind set on Christ. And so it's where Paul is going. He goes, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. For God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So, what's the first thing Paul gets to? And it's our, it's our sanctification. It's a fancy word. It means like set apart. The will of God is that you be set apart. And this is great because sometimes we wrestle with, you know, I don't think there's a person here who doesn't want to know what is the will of God for my life. Where is God leading me? What does God want me to do? I know exactly the will of God for your life. And that is that your sanctification. We'll get, Paul's going to give it to us again in the end of the book. There's another chunk where we can say we know exactly what the will of the Lord is. If you want to know what the will of God is for your life, here it is. It is your sanctification. And that, is, that word just means that you be set apart. That you be different. God has not saved you so that you can live life exactly as the rest of the world does. He has saved you to be set apart. To be something different. The reason Jesus came and died was to fix a broken system. Not so that you could continue to be broken in that system. He came to change what was broken. So Paul says, your sanctification is the will of God. And that is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. And that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles do. The word sexual morality there is like the broadest term. Okay, so anything. Any sexual expression, any sexual thought, any sexual desire, any sexual act outside of the relationship of a man and his wife is immoral. God views it as sin. That's a really broad range. And we, and we can sometimes try and squeeze in, well, you know, this wasn't, this doesn't, is this really, does this count, you know, no, no, all of it, because we're set apart. 
Because God is calling us to something and we're set apart and that means we should look different. Right? Our desires should be different than the world. Our actions should be different than the world. Our hopes, our, our goals, our ideals, what we are chasing after should be different than the world's. And Paul says, if you do this, you're take, if you do this, if you walk in sexual immorality, you're, gonna, you're taking advantage of and defrauding your brother. Sexual immorality robs people of their ability to love well. Okay? We call it love, but it's really not. It's actually selfishness. It's destroying love. It's killing love. And so you're defrauding yourself and other people if you walk in sexual immorality. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. It's the same idea as the beginning. We're, we are called to leave things behind. Why? Because we've been called in holiness. A holy God has called us. And the, His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so we, if we are part of the family of God, that means that the Spirit of God is inside of us. And the Spirit of God does not want to be an observer to sexual immorality. And so that's why he says, if you reject this, you don't reject man, you're rejecting God, who has given us His Holy Spirit. Because, and, and it's a weird blend, where it's kind of, it's one of these sovereignty responsibility verses, where he says, hey, the will of God is that you abstain because the Holy Spirit is in you. So the Holy Spirit in you means that it's improper for you to walk in sexual immorality, improper for me to walk in sexual immorality. But the Holy Spirit in me is the only thing that gives me power to not walk in sexual immorality. Right? So who's doing the work? Is it me or the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit's doing the work and he, and he expects me to go along with what he's telling me to do. And what the Holy Spirit is telling us to do is to understand the will of God and that is our sanctification. So we were called in holiness. We were called to walk in holiness. We're not called, we're not saved by grace. Go back to Romans 5. We're not saved by grace so that we can walk in sin. We are saved by grace so that we don't have to walk in sin, so that our lives can be different. Verse 9, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. This is a different kind of love. This is loving the other person. Sexual immorality is what can I get out of this feeling or this desire. Brotherly love is what can I give you because you're my brother, because you're part of my family, because you're my sister. That means we're all sharing in this inheritance together. We are all partakers. So if I have been given either an insight or an opportunity into the, into the heart of God or to experience fellowship with God, I get to share it with you because it's not mine to hold on to. Right? It's, it's part of God's inheritance for all of His children. And so brotherly love, Paul says, this should be, it should be increasing. And he says, and you guys are doing great. You guys are doing good. But we urge you, brethren, verse, well, end of verse 10, that you increase more and more and that you also aspire to lead a quiet life to mind your own business and to work with your hand as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. This is a, you know, he said Thessalonians has just some practical application. What should you do? If you're walking with the Lord and you're trying to love other people well, increase more and more. Do a great, you're doing a great job, keep working on it. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Do not set your goal, do not set your sights on earning the praise of the world. Do not set your sights on earning the praise of the church. Set your sights on being faithful in what God has called you to do. Aspire to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business. That's just nice and direct, isn't it? Like, Paul says, hey guys, you know what? There are some things you all just don't need to worry about. So don't worry about it. 
It is not your problem. There are some things in life that are just not my problem. And so you know what I should do about it? Mind my own business. Work with your own hands as we commanded you. You know, the Bible's interesting in that it's a, there are promises in the Scripture and sometimes people try and twist them, right? There are ideas in Scripture that get twisted. People love to say, well, hey, if you, if you serve the Lord well, you'll be rich. Well, that's not actually true. That's actually uh, very much not true. But there are principles in Scripture because we live in a cause and effect universe where if you walk a certain way, you're going to invite certain blessings into your life. Now, here's the deal. He says, do these things that you may lack nothing. If you increase in love to one another, if you aspire to lead a quiet life, you mind your own business, and you work with your hands, there's a good chance you'll never be rich. You'll probably never make the Forbes 100 or 500 or whatever list it is, right? But you, know, you probably will be okay. You'll probably get a chance, you know, there'll be times when it's a little bit lean and you're praying and you get to watch the Lord provide. There'll be times when you say, wow, the Lord's really blessing us. Can we bless other people in this? But there are principles in here of, hey, you know what? It, we sow, we reap. You sow diligence. You sow love towards other people. You sow a quiet life, which is contentment. Then very often you will find that you receive what you need by just increasing and abounding more and more in what you're already doing. Verse 13, he goes on. He says, but, and, and I guess to back up, we're going to kind of jump a new section here. The chapter markers are not necessarily in the greatest place. So really, chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11, are kind of one giant thought. We'll try and break it up into a couple. But if you're kind of thinking, hey, he switched gears here. You're right, it's because Paul switched gears here. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul says, all right, I do not want you to be ignorant regarding people who have fallen asleep. Now that's, that's sort of the Christian expression or a Christian expression for people who have died. Because we understand, if you're a Christian and you understand eternal life, death is just a really bad word for what happens to a Christian. Right? Because death is when something ends. And when you're a Christian and you die, nothing ended. Right? It's kind of a, it's a, there's a pause, there's an end of the story that's coming, and we're not totally, you know, we're given pretty clear outline in Revelation of what it looks like, but there's simultaneously a point in which nobody has any idea what it really looks like. And so what is it? Well, it's sleeping, in a sense. Not soul sleep in the sense of like, well, you're just, you know, you're kind of just non-existent. No, no, no. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If a believer dies, they have gone into the presence of the Lord. They are with Jesus Christ. But they're not dead, right? Dead is what happens to trees when they fall over and then rot and there's no more tree. That's dead. People don't do that. And, and we, so we understand. Paul says, hey, I want you guys to be encouraged because the Thessalonian church, and we're going to see, they had a really strong, uh, I don't want to say understanding because Paul's clarifying it. They had a strong sense of the Lord's return. They believed that the Lord was coming and that He was coming quickly. And so they were concerned, hey, what about these people who we know who have died? Does that mean they can't, you know, can they not go with the Lord when He comes back? And Paul's saying, no, 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 I don't want you to be ignorant. They are with the Lord right now. They're not missing out on anything. They are, they are going to be resurrected in the same way that you're going to be resurrected. Their bodies are going to be transformed in the same way that your bodies are going to be transformed. 
right? Our bodies, if we're around when the rapture comes, all of these atoms and molecules will get transformed into something glorious. And the people who we know who have died and gone to be with Christ, you know, their atoms and molecules, the ashes are, the Lord can bring them around. The Lord's ability to transform this into something glorious is no, more mirac is no less miraculous or more miraculous than his ability to take ashes that have been scattered and resurrect them into something glorious. Paul says, people who have fallen asleep, hey, they're going to rise. If Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord. Paul's about to lay out doctrine revealed to him by the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So if you're worried about your relatives who have died, they're actually going to be first in line. Then, verse 17, We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, understand your dead relatives are not gone. They are going to rise again in the same way that when Jesus comes back, you're going to rise again. And then he goes on to describe the rapture of the church. He's describing when the Lord comes back and all the Christians on earth are, tr are taken up to be with him and transformed. Now, this is one of those details where you've got to just kind of pause and explain because there's a lot of different ideas about the rapture of the church. There's a lot of different church backgrounds on what different denominations teach. And I'll just say, if people disagree with what I'm going to say, that is completely fine. I'm seriously convinced I'm right, but that's okay. Uh, so I'm not going to apologize for it, all right? But if you have a different opinion, you are more than welcome to have a different opinion. But here's the basis of how, we, of how I come to these conclusions and how a lot of men who are a lot smarter and wiser than me come to these. And that is that, as a general rule, we always seek to interpret prophecies literally when possible. Almost every prophecy we have about the first coming of Jesus Christ was fulfilled literally. And the ones that were filled in a, more of a metaphor often were given as a, a, more of a symbolic tone. Like, you know, then I saw a sign. Um, there's an idea of what's being described is a metaphor. But in almost every other instance, what we see is a very literal fulfillment, even a fulfillment that we sometimes would have a hard time anticipating if we didn't see it in hindsight. Right? It's really hard to, to wrap your head around a virgin giving birth to a son, literally. Right? That, that just that doesn't happen, literally. And so if you, come before, if you lived before the coming of Christ, you would have said, wow, you know, that, that must be obviously metaphorical for someone who's pure in heart. Right? No, no. The Lord meant a virgin. And he said, a virgin. The Lord means what he says, and he says what he means. So when we look at the prophecies about the second coming of Christ... We try to take them as literally as possible with the understanding that the Lord fulfilled everything literally the first time around. Unless he gives us some sort of message in the scripture to say, hey, first time was literal, the second time is all a metaphor. It's most reasonable to assume, hey, I bet everything's going to be literal. And except for the areas where maybe he says, this is a sign, this is a metaphor, this is a symbol. We're looking at future prophecy as literally as possible. So he says, the, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. So the Lord's going to yell, an angel's going to yell, and there's going to be a trumpet. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. In Greek, the word caught up is the word harpazo. 
It's where we get the word harpoon. And so the idea is caught up. If you harpoon something, what do you do? You hit it, and, so, and then you pull it back. Harpooning is very different from spearing. Because when you harpoon something, there's an idea of, I'm going to pull it back. And so it's almost as if the Lord is going to whoosh, harpoon us, right? Right out of this earth. Or in Latin, when the Bible is translated into Latin, it was translated into the word rapturos, which is where we get the word rapture. So this is the idea of the rapture. Now, people argue about when the rapture is going to be. Uh, because some people say, well, it'll be right before the Great Tribulation starts. Some people say it'll be in the middle. Some people say it'll be at the end. Okay? And again, if you disagree, God bless you. You are more than welcome to disagree. But I very seriously believe that the rapture of the church, where the Holy Spirit comes down, and, or where Jesus comes down and pulls every believer out of this world is going to happen before the Great Tribulation. And I think that's important, and we'll look at it more next week, but there's an idea here that's very important. And this is, and it's this. The Thessalonian church is living with an expectation that Jesus is going to come back any second. And when Paul writes to them, he says, hey guys, you're loving each other well, just keep doing more of it. You're growing, keep doing more of it. You're abounding. Keep doing more of it. And if you think about what would you emphasize if you had three weeks to teach a church, most people would probably prefer to not emphasize end times and the return of Christ. But Paul, for three weeks, felt the need to make sure these people understood that Jesus could come back any second. And what that did is it did not make them, is it drove them to live with purpose. Now, some of them got a little carried away. Paul corrects it a little bit in 2 Thessalonians. But here's the idea. If Jesus could come back right now, that ought to change my behavior. It ought to make me live with a sense of urgency to, to, to the, towards the people around me and with a sense of urgency to be in a position of fellowship with the Lord. Right? If the Lord comes back right now, I don't want, him, I don't want to be embarrassed by what I'm doing. Right? And so, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, is what it's, is sort of the fancy way of saying it, basically, that we get raptured before the Great Tribulation for a couple of reasons. One, because there's a difference between tribulation and the Great Tribulation. Tribulation is hard times and hard life. Every person goes through that. Every Christian goes through that. The Great Tribulation is a specific period of time when the Lord pours out wrath and judgment on the earth for all of its sins. If Jesus bore the wrath for our sins, then we do not need to experience the wrath and the judgment of God for the sins of the earth. And so, it really doesn't make sense for Christians to be on earth during the Great Tribulation. The other idea is that if we put the Great Tribulation, if we put the rapture anywhere else in, scripture, in the timeline, other than before the Great Tribulation, then we have a very clear countdown. Okay, Jesus said, nobody knows when the Son of Man is going to come back. Not the angels in heaven, only the Father knows. The only person who knows when Jesus Christ is going to come back is God the Father. Nobody else knows. But here's the deal. If I believe that the return of Jesus Christ is going to happen at the end of the Great Tribulation, then all i got to do is wait for the Great Tribulation to start, and we can put up a countdown clock. Just like Sunday mornings. Right? 
Because Daniel, we'll get there, uh, not this week, but I think next week, says, uh, excuse me, 1,290 days from the midpoint of the tribulation to the, to the final coming. And so we believe, I believe, and sort of overall where this church stands is that there's going to be the rapture of the church where Jesus comes and rapturos or harpazo or catches up the church, every Christian who believes in Jesus Christ is going to be taken out of this earth. And then the great tribulation is going to come. It will be seven years. And then Jesus will come and set up his throne on earth. Satan will be bound. And the Lord will reign for a thousand years. Okay? And so that's what we're looking for. Paul is outlining this to the church. But the point that he's making is two things. One, the dead are good. If the dead are with Christ, they are, they are, doing, one, they are doing more wonderfully than you can imagine. Right? If they do not know Christ, they are in a place of judgment. And that should cause us to live with a sense of urgency. But Paul's emphasizing here, look, the dead who are going to be resurrected, who are asleep, they're doing great. They are with Jesus Christ. And Jesus could come back any second. So be comforted regarding those who have died. Be on the alert regarding your own self. And then he says, verse 18, Therefore comfort one another with these words. The return of Christ is meant to be a comfort to us as Christians. Jesus coming back is a good thing. It's a wonderful thing, right? It should encourage us. It should comfort us. It should inspire us. I can't wait. We should be, you know, John in the book of Revelation says, the spirit and the bride say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The spirit of God and the church, we're all saying, come on, Lord. How much longer do we have to live down here, Right? I can't wait. I mean, I'm 26 years old. I'm sick of this world. Like, what does it have to offer us? Really? I am sick of living with a sinful heart. I cannot wait to get transformed. Right? I can't wait until the day when every desire I have is for the glory of God. Every thought I pursue is due to the goodness of God. Right? Jeremiah talks about the Lord promises. They'll be, he says they'll be satisfied with my goodness in that day. And I think about that. Like, the idea... That at some point in time, I will know an existence where anything you could tempt me with, I'd say, yeah, but I know the goodness of God. Why would I want anything else? To, to, you know, that day is coming when we will be so satisfied with how good God is that nothing else will tempt us. That's a comforting thought. We are not stuck in these bodies forever. The Lord is doing something. He, he wants to use us. And so the will of God is our sanctification but there's a comfort in knowing that he's coming back. He's going to transform us. And that, com that should comfort us. It should also drive us. But, verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pangs upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. He says, concerning times and seasons, you don't need me to write. Because nobody knows when the day of the Lord is coming. We do not know when the day of the Lord is coming. But it is interesting that we do sort of know times and seasons. I was thinking about this earlier this week. When's the first day of fall? Okay, broadly speaking, September 21st is usually counted as the first day of fall, right? But how do you know that's the first day of fall? Right? Or when's midnight? What time of day is midnight? 12, right? But 
how do you really know that 12 is the middle of the night? If you didn't have a clock, would you be able to wake up and say, feels like the middle of the night, we're halfway through, right? When, did, when does fall actually begin? If you don't have a calendar, and all you have is just the days that you're living through, there's a point in time in which I could say, you know, it is definitely not as hot as it was a little while ago, and the leaves are starting to do something different with their colors, nights are starting to get a little cold, there's not quite as many bugs, I think we're coming into fall. But when is the day? It's not really like a day, right? But there's times and seasons. There's a point in time at which I can say, shoot dang, it's fall time, right? Like, there's a point at which I can say, okay, we are in the middle of fall. And Paul says, there's times and seasons. We ought to be able, as the church, to look and say, hey, you know what? The, I'm pretty sure, like, it's return time for the Lord, right? Like, he's probably getting pretty close. And I hope he's getting close, you know, and... Peter says a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day for the Lord's return. So it might be that the Lord is two days away, and that means he's 2,000 years away. It might be that he's 2,000 years away, and that means he's coming on Friday night, right? But he says, we don't know, but we know, we can see the seasons. We are watching things come to pass in our own lifetime. We're watching prophecies be fulfilled that were spoken by the Lord over 2,000 years ago. We have seen them come to pass. And so we are watching, we're watching the stage be set for other ones that looks like they could come to pass any time, right? The book of Ezekiel, there's a ton of prophecies in there, and a lot of them, Ezekiel 38 and 39, you, you go back and listen to it, all the geopolitical rivalries and alliances are in place. Everything is getting set up for these massive battles that the Lord prophesied, right? We're, we're in the times and the seasons. We should be living with an expectancy, but when's the day? I have no idea. And neither do you, but it'll be when they say peace and safety, and then sudden destruction comes upon them. When the world says, hey, it is good, we have, we are, we're rolling, we've got everything under control, and then sudden destruction, like labor pangs. Which strikes me as kind of interesting, because, you know, I've never had a baby, but in the times I've seen a woman kind of working her way through labor before that she leaves to go to the hospital, it's never like the movies, right? It's never like, you know, I mean, I, I always love watching movies when it's like, it's time to have this baby. And I'm like, I don't think that's how real life works. But, um, but there's a point at which, like, something, there's a switch in there that flips. And all of a sudden, that baby is coming, right? And it's going to build up. But, but by God, the flip switch, and that thing is on its way. And so it's going to come. And it'll come like labor pangs. They'll increase. The judgments of God will increase in frequency. They'll increase in strength. And because the Lord is gracious, there's going to be an opportunity. Hey, you know what? That was bad. There's worse coming. Why don't you repent now? Hey, you know what? That was really bad. There's worse coming. Why don't you repent now? The Lord is going to be giving opportunity after opportunity. And I think there's going to be a massive revival on the earth during the time of the Great Tribulation. But when they say peace and safety, when the, when the world, you know, when, when Christians are all gone, imagine for the world, that would be such a relief. We will be out of their hair. We will quit holding back all of their agendas, right? I mean, I mean, all the ideas that the world wants to, to put in place. There was a time when Christians were sort of, you know, quote-unquote good for society because we made good families and we tended to work hard. And now Christianity has made a switch culturally where now we're starting to be the problem. We're holding back progress, so to speak, quote-unquote. 
And so there will be a point at which, hey, if every Christian is gone, the world's going to say, hey, it's peace and safety. We can finally unite together. We can finally be one happy family now that all those Christians are gone. And then the labor pangs will come. And they shall not escape. Verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. The world is going to be caught off guard when this happens. But Paul says, you shouldn't be. You don't know the exact day, but you're aware. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The coming of the Lord should drive us to a sense of urgency and expectancy. Verse 7, For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. He says, hey, you're living with an awareness. Your eyes have been opened in a way that the world's eyes have not been opened. So that should change your conduct. You should see things in a different light. You should not look at things as who's going to win the election. You should look at things as what is the Lord doing. Right? And so he says, but let those of us who are of the day be sober. We take it seriously, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. Guard your heart with faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Guard your mind with the hope of salvation. You are saved. So you're going to be fine. You are saved, so walk in faith and walk in love. And therefore, he says, comfort each other and edify one another just as you're also doing. So what do we do? We take comfort. Take heart. Don't lose heart. The Lord is working and the Lord is coming. And that should cause us to live with a sense of urgency and expectancy. Verse 12, he says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. In a nutshell, be nice to your pastor. And incidentally, as he applies it, the easiest way to be nice to your pastor, be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14, Now, we exhort you, brethren. Remember last week Paul said, I came like a steward, a mom, and a dad? It's dad time. I kept thinking last week of all the other things that dad used to say to us. And they were just, they kept making me laugh all week long. My favorite, I'm just going to tangent here, but the best one ever. I don't know if he ever used it on us, but he just explained it often. And that is this. Failure to plan on your part does not create an emergency on my part. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. So, now we exhort you, brethren. So this is specific application for every one of us in the church. This is not we exhort you, pastor. This is we exhort you, brethren, brothers and sisters. This is for each one of us. Warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all of them. Do you know how you do that? You do that by getting to know them. Right? The church is meant to be a place where the people of God get to know the people of God and become the family of God. It is not where we go and get entertained and, and cut out. Right? That's why we should, it's why, it's honestly why I love this church so much. Because we finish up, 
We're going to finish up at about 8 o'clock. We're not going to leave here until about 9.30, 9.45, right? Because we're doing life as the church. So that's why, you know, so get to know the people of God. Share in their lives. And if they really bug you, be patient with them. If they're being unruly, warn them. If they're faint-hearted, you know, and they're weak, and they're just kind of like, would you just get a grip on life? Well, then uphold them. Comfort them. Don't render evil to evil. If one of them rips you off, do not pay them back. But always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. What is good for everyone is good for you. That may not always feel like it. Because what may be good for everyone is you sacrificing yourself. But you sacrificing yourself, you letting your flesh die, you know what that is? That's good for you. So, pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Verse 16. Paul's going to go just through a list of things here that uh, are pretty doggone self-explanatory. Rejoice always. Huh. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There you go. Do you want to know what the will of God is for your life? God wants you to rejoice, to pray, and to give thanks. It's an interesting list, right? Like, what does God want from me? He wants you to be joyful. Huh. Well, there's something for us to work on. Something for me to work on anyways. Uh, he wants us to find joy because He is a good God. And we have a relationship with Him. He wants us to pray without ceasing. That means be in a continual conversation. Right? Prayer is not when I... You know, we always... Like, what do you do when you pray? You bow your head and fold your hands. No! You talk! Prayer is talk, right? When I, when I come up to somebody and I talk to them, I didn't say... Hi, Drew, it's good to see you today. Um, gee, I hope you're doing okay. I'd like to ask you if it's okay if we talk after church. Um, in your name, I'm asking. Um, I didn't say that. Nobody says that, right? Hey, man, what's up? How's it going? Where you been? We have a conversation with each other, and that's what our conversation with the Lord should be. There should be a fellowship that's just happening because we're in His presence. Lord, I'm trying to work on this. Would you give me the insight? Lord, would you fix this thing that's broken that I can't fix? Lord... Could you help me by taking care of this relationship? Could you show me the next step? Could you give me wisdom? Right? It should be a conversation in everything of thanks, he says. Not for everything of thanks, because some things we're not thankful for. Right? There are certain things I'm just, I really don't appreciate. But in every situation, I can still give thanks. Because in every situation, God is still God. He is still who he said he is. Right? He is still holding me. His spirit is still dwelling in me. He is still working. And so I can be in a situation where I say, I don't feel like God is working. But I'm going to give thanks to the Lord because I know that He is. This is the will of God for us. Verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's like the best summary to how you handle and balance the Holy Spirit in the Christian walk. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Don't say, no, the Holy Spirit can't do it that way. The Holy Spirit doesn't do things like that. No, no, no. But test the spirits. Do not despise prophecies, but test all things. By and large, if you want to watch the Lord speak to you, He's going to speak to you through His Word. And that's why, if you want to hear the voice of the Lord routinely, you need to be in the Word of God routinely. 
Right? If you say, God, would you speak to me? He says, I already have. I wrote you a book. It's over, I think, how many words? I th- and it's a really long book. Right? There's a lot of the voice of God in this book. And so if you want God to speak to you, open it up and God is speaking to you. If you really want to be amazed at watching God speak to you, read it faithfully. Be on a plan to work through it at a specific pace and watch him drop exactly what you need on exactly the day that you read it. Right? I'm not a fan of flipping the Bible open and pointing. Right? That's not, that's not really seeking the will of the Lord. That's being too lazy to read the Bible diligently. But Paul says, don't quench the Spirit. By and large, how is the, how is the Holy Spirit going to speak to us? Through his word. But that's not the only way. He can speak to us through a word of wisdom, through a word of prophecy, through a word of knowledge. Right? There are all kinds of ways that the Holy Spirit can speak to us. And so Paul says, hey, do not despise prophecies. If someone comes to you and says, hey, the Holy Spirit, the, the Lord told me to tell you this, then don't say, no, he didn't. God only speaks through his word. <laughs> no, no, no. They may very well have been told by God to come and tell you that. But test the Spirit, test all things. Just the fact that someone comes to you and says, the Lord told me, does not mean that the Lord told them. Right? If someone tells you something, it's going to bear out with what the Lord is saying in His Word. It's going to bear out with what otherwise counsel is saying. It's going to bear out with what the Lord is doing in your heart. Right? If the Lord is being very clear to you to go a specific direction, to go left, and someone comes and says, hey, the Lord told me to tell you to go right, it's okay to say, you know what, I'm going to chew on that, but I really don't think that's what the Lord is telling me. But be open to it, right? Don't quench the spirit. Don't say, nope, God can't work in that way. Don't say, nope, God can't do a healing. God can't do a miracle. Don't say, nope, God can't, God doesn't, nope, no, 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 no. God does not work that way. No, don't say that. But also, don't say, oh, God has to do it in some big, fresh way. It's got to be an experience. You know, no, no, the word is, that was, that's for Baptists, right? I'm waiting for something big. No, no. The word of God can speak to you powerfully. And so don't, so work it both ways. Hold fast to what is good. Hold fast. God will never contradict His Word. There are certain things we just need to hang on to. There are truths in here that you hold on to them for dear life. It doesn't matter what your feelings tell you. It doesn't matter what your circumstances tell you. You hold fast. And then abstain, verse 22, from every form of evil. Abstain from the appearance of evil. Stay away from things that look sinful, even if you don't think they are sinful. He goes on in verse 23. He says, Now, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. This is interesting because go back in your mind to first part of chapter 4. Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual morality, that you possess your own vessel and sanctification and honor. And now he says, hey, may God sanctify you. Right? There's a lot of things in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that Paul calls us to do. But he makes a point at the, at the end. He goes back and wants to remind us, hey, but God's doing the work. Right? In, what I think it's Philippians. He says, hey, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you to will and to do His good pleasure. Romans 8 talks about, you know, whom He foreknew, He predestined, and He glorified you. Past tense. God has glorified you. God sees you as fully, complete, and pure, and holy in his mind. And so he's doing the work. He sees you that way. He's going to bring you that way, but you've got to be a willing vessel. But, but don't get so much into that, oh, I've got to be a willing vessel, that now it's, it's riding on me, right? 
Thank God our sanctification doesn't ride on our ability. Right? It rides on His. So may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Christ comes, we're told that everything we've done that's, that's not for Him will just burn up like, like straw hitting a fire. But the really precious things, the gold, the silver, the jewels, they're going to last forever. They're actually going to be purified. Paul says, hey, when God comes, may everything you've done be things that last. May everything you've done be preserved blameless. May there not be anything to burn away of your life when the Lord returns. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Oh, you say, wow, I want, you know, I want my life to be awesome. I don't want there to be any straw. I got to no. He who called you is faithful. He's going to do that. He can do that work in your life. And he wants to do that work. God is on your side. He's a holy king. He dwells in unapproachable glory. And yet he tells us to approach. Right? And it's not this stiff, stern, old guy. It's a God who delights in his creation. He's on your side. He wants you to walk in faithfulness. He wants you to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor. And he wants to sanctify you. He wants to be faithful on your behalf. He wants to keep you. Brethren, verse 25, Paul says, pray for us. And greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. Emphasis on the word holy. If you can't keep it holy, don't do it. Verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. So tonight, we are obeying the word of God. Because who are the holy brethren? It's every person who Jesus Christ saved. Right? Paul says, read this book to all of them. You know what we're doing tonight? We're reading it. Verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. So verse 23, he says, may the God of peace sanctify you. Verse 28, he says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul starts the letter with grace and peace. He ends the letter with peace and grace. May the God of peace sanctify you. The grace of the Lord be with you. And ever increasing amounts, brethren, increase and abound more and more. Because God is at work. Right? Next week we get into 2 Thessalonians. In a sense, it's more of the same because Paul's encouraging and exhorting the same church. But there's an emphasis on the Lord's return and how that should drive us. There's an emphasis on our conduct and our life and our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord. So it's going to be rich. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that like the Thessalonians, we would be excited and eagerly waiting for your return. That that would change our behavior. And that, you would, that we would possess our own vessels. God, that we would be sanctified. That we would abstain from sexual immorality. That we'd be looking for your return. God, that we would rejoice, pray, and give thanks. And yet we thank you, Lord, that it is not dependent on us. It's dependent on the work that you've done in the cross. So we thank you that everything we need has been given to us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You are doing the work. You are faithful. It is all impossible apart from you. And yet you invite us to be part of what you're doing. And so we pray that you would help us to walk faithfully in that. To be obedient. To be surrendered. To do the will of our Heavenly Father. And so, Lord, we just ask these things in your name. We thank you that you are a good God. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.